and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show. Coming back from uh, an interesting weekend at Spa. Yes, it was like a soap opera. And for starters, we did not get a drive-through penalty for mismatched tires. No, we didn't, which is a very good thing because all of our tires match. Yeah, so let's start. Unfortunately, as much as I hate talking about tires, this is, I think, where we have to start. Is this where you're going to put on your Steve Matchett bad tie and sit on a tire or something? No, I'm not going to. No, all the drivers sit on tires when they do the team photos. Right. You sit on a tire. No, it's Steve Matchett hides behind one of the tires to explain the, the color bands and what they mean. Yes, you know something? The, the important thing to take away from the whole colored band thing is that, you know, Steve <laughs> Matchett never, ever, ever mentions when he goes and gives his intro to the tires and all the compounds. And that important thing is that all four, the bands on all four of the tires on the car have to match when the car goes out. It's like tire granimals. Something like that. I mean, do you remember Garanimals? Yes, actually, I do. <laughs> and Underoos. I had Underoos. Did you have Underoos? I did. We're not going to go any further into that discussion. But <laughs> we, are, we will have to discuss that off show. Possibly, Williams may need to consider, instead of colors, animals. Yes. Well, remember, when you had your Garanimals, you could match the colors of the animals or you could match your animals. Yeah, Williams... Well, you know what Williams did? They matched the name on the tires. That, that's what they All did. four said, Pirelli, we must be good. Out <laughs> he goes. <laughs> I wonder what data you get when you have four softs and one medium on the car. Well, th there's been a lot of talk about this because there are actually some series and on some tracks where not matching the tires is actually preferable. Right. Depending on the load of the tires and stuff like that. Formula One is not one of those series in any way, shape, or form. Well, you remember a couple of years ago, was it a couple of years ago or last year, they actually had to make the rule change that they couldn't put the back tires on the front and the front tires on the back or swap them left to right because they could get an advantage that way. They had to go on a specific weight. Well, no, that, that wasn't last year. That was uh, the year before. That was 2013, was and that goes to the other tire discussion that that we need to get into in a little bit and basically pirelli's response to that was you're putting them on the car wrong <laughs> to <laughs> which did, everybody they... else said bullcrap well no they said we're putting them on the car wrong but that was the way they got better advantage out of the tires something like that yeah. they, they were definitely trying to leverage some things there and pirelli said stop doing that that's part of the reason why your tires are exploding we never said do it that way right um so yeah, Williams. I don't. I don't even know how you can explain this. This should be fairly simple. You put it, take the four tires that match, put them in the blankets, and you stack them on top of each other. Then you move on to the next set of tires. Well, I think. I mean, seriously, I don't think that there's been a good explanation other than we screwed up. But even the commentators during the race were like, "What the." Well, there was the guy who came out at towards the end of that pit stop holding a tire, and he's like, um, well, all right, whatever. If you're going to go with that, here you go. But I, I, I had the tire, man. I don't know. Yeah, but where that was, was he? He came running up with the tire, and he stood there. He was standing in front of the whole pit crew as they let the car go. And he, he's he got this look on his face like, what the hell? 
But he should have been there before the car came in. The tires go out before the car comes in. Well, there's that. There's also the question, and, and Williams has not asked, how did this mismatch happen? That somebody apparently figured this out and knew to go running out with the tire and go, oh, guys, you're, you're doing it wrong. And they didn't catch their... I don't know. He was the this, one colorblind. He was the one non-colorblind person on the crew. I don't know, but this is one of those things, you know, to get get back to something that Nikki Lauda said um, back after Monaco that a top team does not make mistakes like this. Right. The, the, there's no call for this. I mean, this is basic trackside procedure here, and Williams has been slipping. I mean, they have shot themselves in the foot so many times in the last three years with basic track failures in basic track size procedure. Well, They've got to figure this out. I was just going to say that. I mean, we talked, we've talked a lot this year about bum calls that Lewis has made and Lewis and Lewis's team have made, and Nikki's right. Top teams shouldn't make these kinds of mistakes. But you look at the history, recent history in Williams – they would be doing a whole lot better if it wasn't for themselves. Well, arguably, Valtteri would have ended up at least four to five places further up the grid if he didn't get nailed with that drive-through penalty. Although the other interesting thing, but and the last point I'll make on this is, yes, he got the the team got hit with the drive-through penalty, mm-hmm. but they weren't told to take the tire off. No, they let him run the whole stint. There was nothing that said. Go back and, 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 and fix this. Yeah. Because that could have been the other thing there. Instead of giving him the drive-through penalty, they could have just turned around and said, bring the car in right now, swap out the tires. And, and that would have go. been almost the equal amount of penalty. It would have been a longer penalty. Well, it would have been the extra seconds in the pit stop versus well, that, just That's it. Just it would have been an extra minute. four seconds because all he got was a drive-through. Right. So it wouldn't have been an additional four seconds at a minimum. Now, three to four seconds. Okay. I was way bit, a wee bit curious listening to the radio call telling Valtari that he had the drive through. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was oddly specific? Come in, drive. You've got a drive through penalty through the pits. Come in through the pits. Do not stop. Just go through the pits. I mean, it was like he explained what a drive through was to a driver that I would have thought a drive through meant something to him. Well, I think that that was also that they were trying to communicate to him that since they weren't being told to change the tires, they weren't going to. Okay. You know, why lose an extra three to four seconds if you don't have to? So that's what they were telling him is how I read that. Yeah, I just found it was a little odd because normally you hear the radio call. You, okay, you've got a drive-through penalty. Next next lap, drive-through, and we'll take our penalty or yeah. whatever. But I just found it was a little odd. But that's not the end of the tire drama. No, and actually for that part of the tire drama or, or the next part of the di- tire drama, we've got to go back a couple of days. And we didn't talk about this last week, even though we had the audio queued up and ready and we – Totally okay, so we forgot. <laughs> we got involved in other discussions. But in free practice two, Nico Rosberg had a blowout coming up, actually on the back end of the track. About a minute earlier from watching the in-car video, you could see the tire start to come apart before it finally went uh, towards the end of the track or, or towards the end of his lap. It was a fairly spectacular blowout. It happened while he was running at about 200 miles an hour. And the thing that truly saved him is that when that tire let go and he lost control, he was in an area where there was a lot of runoff air. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so drivers expressed some concern about this. Folks went to Pirelli to ask them what happened. So first off, we've got some audio from Paul Hambry over at Pirelli for what they did to investigate and what they determined the cause of Nico's blowout was. Okay. Well, as you can imagine, when you, you have a, a situation like that, you've got to do a fair bit of analysis. So the first thing you do is uh, analyze the tires that have come off the same car. Then you go to the teammate's car, and then you go through basically the top runners. Uh, we cut tires up. We have our own little CSI team that work in the laboratory uh, looking at the insides of tires, doing tests. And uh, what we concluded first off was that there was an integrity issue in the sense that we don't see any signs of fatigue on any tires that were used um, during the, the two sessions yesterday. Then you start going through, double-checking that there wasn't an isolated one-off problem with the tyre, and each tyre has its own history file where we go back and look at its, uh, um, the way it's made, the day it was made, all the materials used, and uh, again, that didn't uh, indicate anything that had slipped through the net. So um, using the video evidence primarily, we were able to, to see that um, there was something coming from the external part of the tyre to create the, the problem that you saw with the cord. Uh, unwrapping. Uh, the only way to do that is actually get it and put a cut in through the, the outside of the tyre and uh, that, that's the bit we know. It's coming from the outside and we're, we're finalising now the actual precise cause of, a, of that cut. You mentioned the cord there. We saw it flapping from Eau Rouge onwards so the tyre was starting to go for nigh on a minute. Um, what is that white cord? What does it do? Well, the objective of that cord is actually to hold the, the shoulders of the tyre down so, so it restrains it when you go to high speed and it starts inflating with uh, dynamic forces and that's meant to keep the, the, the shoulder down. So, of course, when that disappears, the shoulder then starts dilating and that's, uh, that's what led to the ultimate failure. And you think it was debris or do you think it was a kerb that cut the tyre? We don't know. Um, we're homing in on what we think is uh, the, the cause and uh, we're looking at more video analysis at the moment, which is, is very useful actually now having these uh, cameras mounted on cars because it's, uh, it gives you a lot more information than we, we certainly would have had in the past. The amount of research that they do is incredible. Well, it, it gives you some idea of how high stakes this is for Pirelli. That oh, when so something happens, they truly want to know what happened and why it happened, and they want to get down to the very nuts and bolts of it. Which brings me to one of my other questions and, and, and points about Pirelli and Formula One in general. You know, Formula One went to Pirelli and said, we want these tires that will not last the course of a race. Right. We want it to we want them to degrade faster than tires normally would. We want to make sure that teams have to pit stop at least once in every single race. Now think about that. You're going to a tire manufacturer and you're telling them we want you to build unreliability and instability into your product. Mhm. Mm most tire manufacturers, they're going to want to go in and market on the durability and performance of their tires. Right. And this goes completely against that. Oh, yeah. And we've said that all along. We've said all along that Pirelli sits in a very interesting spot. I mean, here they are. What was it one commentator said? 100% winners of every oh, F1 race. David Cothard and, has said this. And yet... They also are 100% losers in every race, too, because everybody complains about their tires going off, and every manufacturer seeks the longest wearing. I mean, for a consumer car, you want your tires to last longer, to perform mm -hmm. better. You don't want them to degrade, and so now they're going out there and saying, hey, we build great tires that when we drive them in Formula One tracks, they fall apart. Well, there, there's that, and then you have on top of it the constant 
beating up on Pirelli that Pirelli gets for these tires, for bringing to Formula One the tires that Formula One asked them to give them. Well, and that's just indicative of the entire problem that is Formula One. Formula One asks for something and then complains that they got it. When they get what they want. So moving on to the next, the other very salient point that we that I have to mention is as we move through this timeline in this discussion. Right. Over the uh, it was at one of the drivers meetings and I believe it was just before the start of the practices or it may have been between FP1 and FP2. I'm not sure the exact timing of it. But in the Eau Rouge Radion area, this is the uh hairpin that happens as the cars go up the hill. Right. There was a sausage curve that was put in to prevent the drivers from cutting the corner. The drivers, in particular, the Formula One drivers, expressed concern that going over that curb when it rains, and because Spa is prone to rain, could upset the car and and, and cause drivers to lose control, being a safety issue. Also, there was talk that possibly uh, a couple of GP2 cars had hit it during one of the, the runnings and had actually gotten airborne. So as a result, the FIA and Charlie Whiting made the call to remove the curbs completely. Oh, okay. So those curbs were taken out. Now, what we then saw throughout the remainder of the weekend is cars cutting that hairpin to some extent. Right. And what you haven't seen, Patricia, and there was pictures that came out during the Porsche Challenge race that happened— Cars were cutting it so badly that they were too abreast off the track going through. Whoa. Track limits right out the window. Mm. Well, if they're not going to enforce track limits, I mean, that's the thing. They come out and they say, we're enforcing it on these corners. Well, that means the four other corners are free for all. And there was talk that the FIA was had warned drivers to be mindful of the track limits, especially since those curbs were removed. Now, what we saw repeatedly throughout the video or, or, or throughout the race is that with the exception of, I think, one driver, those track limits were not enforced, especially over there, and drivers consistently cut those corners. Yeah. Which then brings us to Sebastian Vettel who had a pretty good race. He did. Um, he was in a pretty good position to, well, odds are he would not have been able to maintain third because the truth of the matter is Roman Grosjean was pushing really hard. He had the race of the year for Lotus and for himself. I think Roman has, on this race, based on this race, redeemed himself for 2012. And if you don't know what happened in 2012, Roman Grosjean caused a massive crash, took out Fernando Alonso, took out Lewis Hamilton. Cars were airborne. It was carnage. And as a result, he earned himself a race ban and did not run at Monza in 2012. Correct. And it was after the season, after that 2012 season, I mean, Roman was known for first lap incidents Mm -hmm. almost as much as Maldonado is known for it. 
Um, he was. Da- I mean, the drivers came out and said how dangerous he was on the track. Well, the the fu- because he started the first half of 2013 almost as bad before he finally buckled down. But it was so bad that Mark Weber would call him, called him a fir- uh, first lap nutcase. Yep. But Backed off on those words after Suzuka in 2013, <laughs> but um, but his calming down is almost directly tied to about the the timing of the of the birth of his child. Yes, and I think that a little bit of humanity and realizing that you could die cut him back, and he's been growing as a driver ever since. And when we first started watching Formula One, I hated him, hated him. And I have to tell you that my feelings, and this rarely happens, you can attest to that. Yeah. My feelings for him have completely changed in almost a 180 degree manner. He is becoming quite a very good driver and a respectful driver on the track. And I've been amazed at how he has matured. I have not seen such maturity out of Pastor Maldonado. Thus, he stays on my bad list. But anyway. Back to the Tigers. Roman was definitely catching um, Sebastian. And with two laps to go, Sebastian was barely holding him off. Mm -hmm. However, the big difference is that Roman, I believe, had been on a two-stop strategy. Right. Ferrari had made the call. And Ferrari says that they had made this decision several days earlier. Ferrari was on a one-stop strategy. So at this point, Seb's tires had had something like 20 some, 22 or 23 laps on them. Nobody else had pushed their tires like this. Pirelli had come forth, and they had said that they thought that this was a, two lap, or a two-stop strategy, and they expected several teams to even try a, three, a three-stop strategy. Mm-hmm. Vettel pushed it a bit harder than that, and tire let go. In the same place that in free practice, too, we started seeing Nico's tire go. Right in that whole um, Radion Rouge complex there is when Vettel's tire let go. Right. So the initial thought was that, well, Ferrari rolled their dice and they lost. Mm-hmm. You know, they tried for the one-stop strategy. They shouldn't have done that. They were pushing it. So... BBC went and spoke to Sebastian Vettel post-race, thinking that they were going to get the comments from Seb regarding, yeah, the strategy was, was you know, we tried, we, we rolled the dice, we blew it. Let's hear what Seb had to say. Oh, my. Sebastian, were Ferrari being a little bit too greedy in the end, do you think? No. So you were happy with the decision and you wanted to stay out? You could have got to the end, you felt? Well, how many laps I was missing? Not many. And... Things like that are not allowed to happen, full stop. If it happens 200 meters earlier, I'm not standing here now. I'm with 300 stuck in Urush, so I don't know what else needs to happen. Uh, yeah. So in that case, so you're obviously upset that the, the tire went in that way, but you'd run it for 27. What is upsetting? Upsetting is that one thing is the result. You know, this is racing. For sure, you know, we, we deserve to finish on the podium. But the other thing, as I said, if this happens earlier, then... You know, I don't. I think it's a sort of theme that keeps going around. Nobody's mentioning it, but it's unacceptable. 
You were one of the drivers who stated your concerns to Charlie Whiting on Friday in the driver's briefing. Was that taken seriously? Well, I think it was, but what's the answer? Same as uh, every time. Yeah, well, there was a cut, debris, uh, the, 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 maybe something wrong with the bodywork, the driver went wide. If Nico tells us that he didn't go off the track, he didn't go off the track. I mean, why should he lie to us? It's, uh, same with me, I didn't go off the track. It's just out of the blue, the tyre explodes. And as I, says, as I said, if this happens earlier, then... But you drivers must be the ones in the power seat. So what do you do now before Monza? Oh, I think we need to speak to each other. Uh, it's probably not as bad as it was in Silverstone some years ago, but it's not acceptable. Thank you. Wow. Yeah, that, that was not the direction I think anybody, let alone Lee McKenzie, thought that that conversation was going to go. Well... No, I don't think Lee thought that at all. Now, in the driver's meeting right prior to the race, in the mm-hmm. wake of Nico, before Sebastian's went off, Lewis and Sebastian had expressed issues and questions about the tires um, in the driver's meeting, as they have consistently. And I think people have just kind of said, well, whatever at this point. But Seb seems to be a little hot under the collar about the tires. And frankly, I think he thinks that it's all Pirelli's fault. He does. You know, there's a couple of things that, that you need to, to look at with all of his comments here. A couple, couple of things you have to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. The first one is, and I believe it was Alan Permain over at Williams, trackside operations over at Williams, who came out and said that he didn't see any indication of well, normally the way the way the, the Pirelli tires uh, indicate that they've been run too long is that time starts to drop. Right. Driver starts to lose traction. Seb's tires didn't fall off. Right. It was all of a sudden, boom, away he went. Yeah. Which which is unusual for how the Pirelli tires go off. The other thing is. You know, Seb turns around and he says, well, you know, drivers didn't go off the track. This is unacceptable. But he went off the track. We know he went off the track. We saw him go off the track almost every single lap. And he did it in the same place. He did it where they pulled the curbs out. And a lot of the drivers were cut in that corner there. And track limits, why have those white lines? Why have those curbs? Why have any of these other things if we're not going to enforce them? Right. But I guess what he's trying to say is that since they pulled the curbs out, it was okay for him to go and exceed track limits. I See, and I don't agree with that. I mean, I get that drivers will look for the fastest route. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is track limits need to be enforced one way or the other. Wh- whether it's you bring the gravel back. And I don't know why the gravel's been taken out and why they're paving over the, these runoff areas. Either bring the gravel back. Either turn around and say, we're going to heavily penalize you unless you are battling for position that if you go off the track, if if you exceed the – and not just the all four off, which is what we've technically had in the – what we've had in the past, but if you go over the line at all and you are not battling for position, you will get a penalty. Well, see, the way they have said it now – is that if you exceed track limits and you gain an advantage, that's the little preposition in the the piece. And you gain an exam. That's why they're not enforcing the track limits is because, you know, he's two seconds away from any, you know, front and back. 
goes over the track limits. Yes, that's the fastest line. He's not really gaining an advantage because he's not gaining a place. Well, see, I disagree. You are If it is faster to cut that corner and run off the track, you are gaining an advantage. Even if you are not battling for a position that is helping you take that corner faster and either maintain your position or open up that gap. And in that respect, you are gaining an advantage but before we get too deep into this we have alan hembry's post-race comments uh just before or or, i'm sorry paul hembry uh his his post-race comments so let's let's get them real quick well paul how surprised were you to see ferrari attempt a one-stop strategy this afternoon well, you know, you, you have to be a little bit because it was the only car doing that. But um, they obviously felt that that was something that uh, was feasible. And, you know, if the race was one lap less and on the podium, they would have been geniuses. So, you know, sometimes the margins are very fine. Given the data you had going into the race, what was your advice to the teams in terms of strategy? Well, we felt, um, certainly we would have said to the media, that it was a two-stop race. And we knew that a number of teams were looking at doing a three, which indeed some of them tried, and some also had that as a backup strategy. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a different, different to everybody else. But, you know, that's happened in the past. And uh, as I say, uh, sometimes it delivers uh, you know, exceptional results. And, uh, you know, you'll be here saying what a wonderful uh, approach it was to, to deliver that result. So when Sebastian Vettel comes out after the race with some very strong comments about Pirelli, how do you react? I think, you know, you've got to give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, he's, he's a driver, he's hot, he's been out there and um, be angry, frustrated with not getting the result that uh, he clearly wanted. You know, he's only a lap away from, from getting that result. So you have to, you know, I'm not going to criticise him for, for that. Friday's long running was interrupted by red flags and accidents. Had you had a proper session on Friday afternoon, do you think Ferrari might have done something different today? That's always the benefit of hindsight, you know. Um, it's it's a track that really is uh, strong on the, the structure of the tyre. And, uh, you know, we had Friday with Rosberg, which was cutting the tyre, and then today, which was where, you know. So um, it's, it's not something that we'd, we'd envisage today. As you saw, uh, the race was, was pretty straightforward for everybody uh, bar, bar one car. So um, from one side, you could say that's frustrating, but, you know, that's also it's also racing, pushing the limits. Given the high track temperatures we've seen this weekend, were you right to bring the medium, the soft tyre, do you think? Yeah, sure. I think if we'd had the harder tyre, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have had enough traction here. And um, probably had overheating on the rear tyre, on the surface. So that, that really wouldn't have worked here. Thank you. Now, I was reading that Paul Embry came out post this, probably only a couple of days later, um, and said that he wanted to remind the teams that they had rejected the proposal that Pirelli could put a max number of laps on a given tire. Yeah. And that, by the way, would have been 22 for the tires, and he ran 28. See, now, the, the other points that Ferrari likes to make, besides the fact that they had decided on this strategy the day before or two days before, and that, that's what they had decided to run with, they, they come back and they, they have said that they didn't see any indication of where. And as much as Pirelli wants to turn around, this is Ferrari, going as much as Pirelli wants to say that they would have limited this to twenty this tire to 22 laps, they have, as do all the teams, they have a Pirelli engineer in the garage with them. And the Pirelli engineer did not express any concerns whatsoever over the strategy or the wear or the life of that tire. Oh. Yeah. It's it's very odd. Now, 
somebody who we like to talk to, we, we like to hear comments from quite a bit, Gary Anderson, yeah. uh, formerly of the BBC. Gary was the one who, who probably diag- correctly diagnosed what had happened in 2013 at Silverstone when all the tires were exploding. Right. Uh, he was the one who, who uh, went out to the corner where the tires were letting go and noticed that the, the curbing there was a bit sharper and it ca- drivers were running off the curb there. And it, it with cuts being uh, discovered on the inside of the tires, that it would correspond with cars running off that curb and cutting the tires against the curb. Right. So Gary has come out and he has said, um, to me it looked like delamination of the tread starting from the outside shoulder. We saw this a few years ago when the tread started to come off. I don't know what warning the team would have had. The pressure would have been fine, probably even for a few seconds after the tread came off. And again, the temperature in that area probably wouldn't have shown anything. The question is, did they go far enough to wear out the tire tread exposing the carcass? I personally don't think so because that's something that gets monitored very closely by both the team and Pirelli and also because of the camber. The highest wear should be on the inner shoulder. Vettel was fairly annoyed by it all, rightly so. He did say that neither him nor Rosberg on Friday went off the track. I think they both should sit down and have a look at the replay. If I was involved in the decisions, I would investigate the tra- I would instigate that track limits means the complete car has to be within the white lines at all times. And honestly, Personally, this is not Gary's words. That's what I think the issue is. Yeah, I think that I think that there is something about crossing those curbs. Even when they remove the sausage curbs, there's something there mm-hmm. that's causing that. I mean, there's something. There's that, and there's also, and, and I don't think neutering the curbs further is the right answer. The drivers need to be penalized somehow when they exceed track limits, and they need to be made to take those track limits seriously. In the course of normal racing, I don't think they should be deterred when they're battling for position that, okay, if they cut it a little wide, they don't get penalized for that as long as, you know, it's not the, like we saw in the Porsche Cups, two and three cars abreast going off track. Yeah. So here's my question for you. Okay. What do you think, and this is an honest theory question. What do you think that this will do to Pirelli's bid for the 2016 tires versus Michelin? I think it depends on how much Pirelli wants to stay in. Well, you got to ask your question. You got to ask the honest question. Why would you? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure I see the benefit considering they become the dog of every race. Exactly. Yeah, I, I don't quite know why why any tire manufacturer would, would want to get involved and take the abuse that Pirelli takes. Mm-mm. You know what? Hey, speaking of abuse. Okay. <laughs> I'm a little afraid of where this is going. Let's jump to McLaren. Oh. Okay. You know, we had spoken last week bef- that uh, their performance in qualifying was dismal after telling us that they had brought these improvements that were going to put them um, in a position where they could be battling with the Ferraris. Right. They were not battling with the Ferraris. No. They were so far behind. And, you know, they we were battling with Marusha. Yeah. They were a lap to two laps down for most of this race. 
So pray tell, how did my boy Jensen spin his enjoyment of this race? Well, let's hear what Jensen had to say. Well, Jensen, we heard some chat on Team Radio from you right at the beginning. It sounded like you thought you had a problem. Was there a problem throughout? Yeah, we, uh, we weren't uh, recovering and we weren't deploying um, properly. So I'd get it in a few places, not many. And uh, after Eau Rouge, it would cut. So I'd have the whole of the straight without any deployment whatsoever. So F1 cars aren't very quick without the electric motor, I've realized. Uh, a little 1.6-litre engine. Um, so, yeah, really tough. You know, I don't, we weren't quick anyway, as you can see from Fernando. But when you don't have the electric motor, you're losing, you know, 160, 180 horsepower. So, um, yeah, quite embarrassing, really, to be floating around at the back. Um, but at the last eight laps, these guys had a good fight. And when they lapped me, I had a grandstand view of their race, which is the only highlight. Yeah, we heard your in-car commentary. You were commenting on why the guys hadn't pitted in front of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're all doing the same thing, and they're all sliding around it's easy for me to say because i'm a lap down but uh, always interesting to have a view everyone else seems to have a view about my race so uh, it's interesting to have a view about someone else's just finally honda had come here with such promise for increased power that hasn't been fulfilled would you say not for me today um maybe petrol engine yes but when the ears isn't working it's uh it's an issue for us anyway it's an area where we're weak the the ears unit but um especially when it's not working um but uh yeah we need to look at the data and um we're all pushing as hard as we can. We knew this one would be tough. The next one will be tough as well. Uh, and then it's Singapore, and that's really our A game. Bring it to Singapore and, uh, and see what we can do. Thanks, Jensen. I fear their A game is in a different race. Well, you know, he's saying Singapore. But that, that you know, th- there's some question as to how well they're going to do in Singapore. You know, they're banking on Singapore because that is a, slow, a low-speed track. It is it's a street circuit. So, you know, it's like running in Monaco again. So they're, they're thinking, they're banking that that's going to give them a fighting chance. But the other issue that they run into, and, and they've said this in the past, is the cooling of the electrical system isn't that great in that car. Right. It gets hot in Singapore. It does. It's part of the reason why that's a night race is because of how hot it is in Singapore, and it does not cool down. So I don't know if I would be so quick to say, yeah, Singapore is it. We're there. We're going to be. No. So speaking of our McLaren Honda Mm -hmm. fabulousness, did you read the article that Charlie Whiting came out and said that he believes that Honda has violated the good faith uh, part of the rules with the engine change? No, I haven't. What is he saying? Okay, so, as you know, the last time they changed their engine, they got their bazillion grid penalties. Well, that was this race. No, the one before. The last time they got the thing and they had to do, take drive through penalties. Oh, okay. Um, so, they changed, in the rules change that they did that started at Spa, one of those rule changes was that if you couldn't take all your grid penalties, you just started at the back. Mm-hmm. That was the deal. Well, so Charlie Whiting said that the good faith portion of that was that you wouldn't be taking advantage of said rule. <laughs> Apparently, Honda were the first people, I mean, the second that rule comes into play, Honda comes out and says, we got to change our engine. <laughs> New engine. And took the, the penalty 
the reality was that Charlie's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Well, the, I, I think some of what we need to see is going into Monza, Red Bull has already announced that they will be doing engine changes as well. And they will be taking penalties there because they also think that they've got a fighting chance in Singapore. And they do not want to deal with engine penalties there. So the question is, does Red Bull end up taking a 500-grid penalty like um, McLaren did? Or is it going to be I know. a bit less? Well, that's the thing is... Um Charlie had come out and said that the rule was written in good faith, not meant to incentivize the teams to change their engines. The thing is, and even if you want to turn around and allege that this wasn't done in good faith on Honda's part, really what's the benefit to them? Whether they kept the engine in there or not, they were going to be running around in the same general position to begin with. So truly, it would be one thing if they got into the points out of this. Yeah. But they were nowhere close. No. Nowhere close at all. You know, all of this, I think, just we, we've got to bring back Eddie's complete, completely perfect summation of the situation that he gave us last week. I really fear that they have misjudged the whole competitiveness of Formula One in its current guise. I mean, I think that's it right there. Yeah, I think that he, I think they're playing by 2008 rules. Or whenever the last time they were in the sport. But I think they're playing by what it was like 20 years ago and well, not what it's like today. I, I don't know about that because um, post-race, and, and I did not take his comments, there was a lot of talk, again, about McLaren and Honda and their relationship. And Eddie Jordan's comments then were along the lines of that the Honda that is today— is not the Honda of 25 years ago that was partnered with McLaren, uh -huh. let alone the one that ran their own works team. There is a different culture. There is a different attitude. The, the leadership is completely different. You know, folks have retired and moved on and whatever. But this is not the same Honda in any way, shape, or form as the Honda that was in F1 the last time. And that is some of the issue. Well, that could make sense. I mean, that, that I think, is where Eddie has summed it up so perfectly. They've misjudged it. They're not the same people. They're misjudging it. Yeah. Hey, you know, going back to remainder of the podium, you know, we talked about Lotus and we talked about uh, uh, Pat, or Roman's great drive. Not so great, unsurprisingly, was Pastor Maldonado with another did not finish. Yes. Now, what happened was his car shockingly lost power after an impact with a curb, mm -hmm. completely self-inflicted. Yes. He hit the curb at 17 Gs. Yes. Yes. Um, I was reading an article that his DNF, again, is self-inflicted. The other thing we should mention while we're talking about Lotus, you know, last week we talked about that uh, there was a possibility of their as of assets being seized in response to the lawsuit uh, with Charles Charles Peak and drive time. Right. We do know that the bailiffs were there. Mm -hmm. um, Lotus apparently was forced to break curfew 
in the run-up to the race because of this whole legal situation. They were required by the courts to keep somebody in the garage to make sure items did not walk. Wow. So they had to break curfew because normally you have to lock up the garages and leave. Mm-hmm. They broke curfew. We do know that bailiffs seized the cars while the podium ceremony was going on. There was talk that everything was going to be resolved on Monday when the banks opened. I haven't seen anything one way or the other. I'm assuming that means that they did resolve it. I'm just surprised that there hasn't been anything about that. Very interesting. Because I'm also reading articles that the Renault-Lotus deal is, quote, imminent. Yeah, it looks like this is the week that um, papers are going to get signed, and this is going to happen. Um, what we know, I have to get, get that article up, is that Renault is going to take, take a stake of up to 65% of Lotus. It's going to be worth a total of 65 million pounds in cash. Just, you know, got to keep that clarification going for those who need it. With an initial down payment of 7.5 million pounds to be followed by equal installments over the following 10 years. So this would guarantee Lotus remains in the sport for 10 years as a works team. Now, Gerard Lopez, who's currently the team co-owner via Jenny I Capital, looks set to remain as a shareholder with a potential stake of around 25%, with four-time champion and Renault ambassador Alain Prost acquiring the remaining 10%, which is very similar to the deal uh, with Toto Wolff and Niki Lauda over at Mercedes. Now, following a Renault presentation meeting currently scheduled for this Monday, an array of documents is then due to be signed involving parties from both both parties over the following days. At this stage in the proceedings, Renault is understood to have negotiated a full sponsorship package with the board, signing uh, signing off on a budget that would put it on par with the likes of Mercedes and Red Bull. So what we don't know is the driver line. At this point, it is expected that the team will keep Roman, French driver, French team. However, it is believed that negotiations are ongoing between Pastor Maldonado and his backer, Petey Vesa. Oh. So it is unclear whether or not he will remain. Um, it's also said that the up-to-date facilities at Lotus's Enstone factory, which are well-known to Renault from its previous ownership of the team, are crucial to the deal. Lotus's computational fluid dynamics program and driver-in-a-loop simulator are only two years old, while the 60% wind tunnel is three years old. Now, the other thing that happened last week is that Renault approached VJ Malia and Force India about the possibility of taking a stake in that team as well. Now, the I've heard two different things come out, and, and it's unclear as to exactly what is correct. I've heard that they approached Malia uh, with the possibility of taking a majority stake. I've heard that they've approached about taking a minority stake. However, the key thing that has put the Force India deal, at least given that less of a priority compared to Lotus, is that Force India does not have the facilities like Lotus does. So the facilities seem to be a very, very big deal. If, however, for some reason the Lotus deal falls through, it sounds like 
Lotus plan or, or Renault plans on on going ahead with taking over Force India instead. Interesting. So then the next question becomes: What about the engines? Knowing that one Red Bull's deal with Lotus is that they get priority, mm-hmm. or excuse me, Lo- Red Bull's deal with Renault is that they get priority. They are the number one team when it comes to engines. So here we have Renault coming and becoming a works team. On top of that. Lotus is a Mercedes team. Lotus ditched Renault last year after their own problems. To further muddy the waters, Renault, as a manufacturer, does have a partnership with Mercedes in the road car business. <laughs> so it is conceivable that Renault could keep lo- keep their new works team, the former Lotus team, running Mercedes engines for a stretch there and give Red Bull their priority until that engine contract runs out. There is also the possibility that Renault could negotiate moving Lotus's contract with Mercedes over to Red Bull, which, as we discussed last week, is fraught with its own perils for Mercedes. Oh, and this is... The- Seriously, Days of Our Lives has nothing on this. You know that, right? <laughs> Whoa, Th- my this head is This is really is an interesting spinning. development here. It is. It is, but... This is why we watch Formula One, though. I know, but I'm starting to feel like I'm watching musical chairs. In a way, you kind of are. It's like, when the music stops, everybody change your engines. In a way, you kind of are. Well, are we... Done with that, can we move on to talking a little bit about Haas? Sure. So Haas has now got down to a short list. Of 10 drivers? I think they're down to like shorter than 10, but probably like eight. Um, I know we've all heard Rossi, Rossi, Rossi for Haas. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a name that looks like it's on the short list that we haven't heard in a little bit. I heard this one. Max Chilton. No, that's not the one I heard. Really? I heard one of the Andretti boys. No, I don't have Andretti. Yeah, I I heard one of the Andretti boys. Nope, I heard Chilton. Actually, I have heard talk of an Andretti returning to Formula One somehow. Let me put it that way. Oh, okay. I don't know if they would be a Haas driver or if they would be looking to come as a team, if possibly they were the ones who approached the FIA and the FIA said, yeah, go away because you don't have three truckloads of money. I don't know. Well, but Andretti has been tied with coming back. Well, apparently Max is in talks with Haas. Okay. Of course, Rossi is in talks with Haas. And how about this name that you haven't heard for a while? Jean-Eric Verne. I have heard that he was on the list and, and, and that there was a potential there. And the interesting thing about Jean-Eric is that he is already a Ferrari driver. Yes. And since Haas is doing all things Ferrari... That seems to make some sense. Well, you know, you got to keep in mind that, what was it, last year or the year before, Toro Rosso was a Ferrari team. So all of those Red Bull drivers came up on Ferrari engines. Right. So for John Eric Verne to remain within the Ferrari stable makes perfect sense. Um but he's not the only one. Esteban Gutierrez has been talked about quite a bit because both the ties with Ferrari and his Carlos Slim money and the fact that they're an American team and 
he's a Mexican and all of that, he has been talked about quite a bit as being one of the two drivers. Very interesting. So I think, what did we just list off? Five of their shortlist drivers. I hope they realize, unlike Monisha Keltenborn, that they really only have two seats. True. However, you can do the Lotus thing. Have 92 backup drivers. 92 backup drivers and just let one guy buy his way into FP1 as long as you don't overcommit. <laughs> I think the key is, you know, using a calendar and not overcommitting. Yeah. Um, what else do you have? Well, we also have, you know, last week we talked about um, the new restrictions when it came to radio messages. Yes. The FIA has come out with some clarifications. Um, they came out with it just ahead of the Belgian Grand Prix. Um, the changes are there's, there's now more precise detail over when certain messages can and cannot be transmitted. Okay. Which, in all honesty, I think just makes it more confusing. Of course. So, but the big thing is that messages given on the track in the pit lane entry or pit <coughs> exit during reconnaissance laps with a car deemed to be on a reconnaissance lap from the time it leaves a pit lane until the time it re-enters a pit lane or reaches its position, there's 11 of them. 11 okay. of them. Including, you can't carry out a radio check with the driver. I don't know why. You cannot tell the driver to turn off the car, which that's bad at so many different levels. You may not tell the driver to make his way to the back of the grid. You may not tell the driver to drive through the pit lane. You may tell the driver to respect the maximum lap time provided it is clear that he is in danger of exceeding it. You may inform the driver about a wet track, oil, or debris in certain corners. You may give the driver marshalling information. You may tell the driver to enter the pit lane or to fix or retire the car, but you can't turn the car off. Okay. So instead, it's going to be the guy standing at the side of the track, waving his arms, going, stop the car, you idiot, you idiot. We're going to wind up with a baseball-like signs going on and people strategically in the stands around the, the track. That's going to be the next thing is where else are we going to see pit boards being posted? Yeah. Because, yeah, this is, I, I, I don't get it. I mean, I think I get the idea that they don't want them broadcasting anything that makes it sound like it's too easy for the drivers. It's not easy. But it's not easy. And I think that they're just, I don't know. I think they'd be better off instead of trying to limit the actual communication between team and driver. Go in and limit what can be broadcast. There's that. The other thing that I think the FIA really needs to take a close look at is the virtual safety car. Okay. Well, our the, the way the virtual safety car was explained to us and the way we have been talking about it is that when a virtual safety car is activated, that the cars are governed by the programming so that they cannot exceed a certain speed. Right. Just like it happens when they cross the pit lane line. It, it's hard for them. Apparently, it can still be done. But there is go a governor that kicks on to regulate their speed in the pit lane. And same thing is supposed to happen during a virtual safety car. 
However, as happened in Spa, and I think it happened one or two other times, when the virtual safety car came on, Nico managed to close the gap to Lewis. Now, if the drivers are supposed, their speed is supposed to be regulated and they're not supposed to be exceeded, exceeding a certain lap time, then the gaps between drivers are supposed to be maintained. That's the whole idea here. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, how was Nico able to close the gap? And Nico, and, and when Lewis found out that that had happened, he questioned the team. He never got an answer about it. Yeah. And some of the uh, the commentators, at least on the BBC, Ben Edwards had mentioned it, that it seems odd that under virtual safety car, Nico was able to close the gap. And we saw this also in Monaco where it didn't seem like gaps were being maintained and pace was being maintained under the virtual safety car. And I think the FIA needs to take a close look at how the virtual safety car is working and is it doing what it's supposed to be doing because I'm not sure it is. That's really weird. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know how it's supposed to work because you talk about it being a governor and I've heard you say that multiple times but I know that they can still speed in the pit lanes. Yeah. So is it a governor or are they being told what speed to maintain and not to close the gaps and is the gap getting closed because Lewis is going slower than he should be? Well, I know they're not allowed to exceed a certain um, lap time. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got they've got to keep it under that lap time. Now, it's possible that what that governor does is instead of regulating engine speed, it prevents them from shifting gears, thereby forcing them to stay in a lower gear and a slower speed. And since they can't shift gears, they can still speed within that gear. Right. That may be what's happening. I don't know. I don't know either. But I think that... That whole situation and, and that technology needs to be looked at already. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I don't think it, I don't think it makes much sense to me, and thus I can't understand how the differences are happening. So we now head over to Monza mm-hmm. for what may be the last two races there. I know it's pretty sad. However. I know one Russian who will be very excited to go to Monza. Apparently, it's his favorite track. Kvyat's favorite track is Monza. Interesting. He says that it has something special in every corner. Does it now? Kvyat, I believe. We could we could go all kinds of directions with that. Probably. I'm beginning to believe that he is our new Jensen Button. He may be, but we don't get as many recorded comments from him. Maybe the BBC needs to talk to him more. Well, I think they will now that they've gifted him a book. <laughs> Maybe. So Monza is arguably the fastest race of the season. Mm-hmm. The speeds are fastest. We see the cars running their lowest possible downforce. Um, and there's a ton of history at this track. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a phenomenal track, and it's Ferrari's home track. Yes. We should also probably see that funky wing on Mercedes again next race did you notice the different wing yes it's called a spoon wing Mm -hmm. did you know that now i did not now my understanding though was that that wing was a compromise yes um it was 
to reduce drag but still give them a decent amount of downforce because while Spa is a fast track, there are points where downforce is very good and very needed. With the long straights that Monza has, I'm wondering whether or not Mercedes is going to still run that wing or if they're going to go with the skinny wings that everybody else typically runs. Well, what they were testing out with the spoon wing that they did this last with Spa was the idea of this compromise. Mm -hmm. However, one of the things is that the spoon wing was originally seen by Sauber a couple of years ago and had to be phased out due to the DRS slot uh, change in size, making the spoon wing not feasible. Hmm. Um, by getting a little creative about how they made the slot for the DRS, they Mercedes was allowed was able to try this concept out again. There is prediction that we will see the spoon wing in Monza again. Now I don't know if it will go forward, but it is the first kind of major style difference that we've seen in a wing for a while yeah definitely so it's it's something all right but uh a little bit of housekeeping housekeeping we, we should mention that even though there is a race next weekend we will not be doing a show not because we're going to the race no i wish but uh no trisha has some things going on so she will be gone over the weekend and me and the boy just doing a show. You don't want to hear that. You really, really don't want to hear that. So. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that he thinks that, yes, you do want to hear that. But that's for you two to discuss. I will be out. And we know everybody listens to me anyway. Okay, well, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll let you continue with that belief. <laughs> but we will have post Monza comments the following weekend. Yes. So uh, other than that, I think we will wrap it up. Remember, we are still waiting to see those likes start to materialize on the Facebook page. And we know it was aspirational to ask for 100. Yeah, uh, apparently very aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> right now we need to see one. Come on, you can do it. We know we're not talking to an empty room because I'm seeing the downloads. So It's one person they just download a lot of times. Phil, I like you, but I don't think you're that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. So with that. I think we'll call it a show. 